I don't know how many of you here are college football fans, but those of you who are know that tomorrow night is the last game of the season here, and it will determine the national championship. And two of the best teams in the nation, universities of Alabama and Georgia, who are coached by two of the best college football coaches in the nation, Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, will square off against each other. Don't ask me who I want to win. I hope they both lose, but that can't happen. So uh, I'll just enjoy the game. But there's no doubt that these coaches are brilliant at what they do, and Nick Saban in particular. I mean, he's legendary in what he has accomplished. Over the course of his college coaching career, he has won seven national championships, which is completely unprecedented. And whenever anybody asks him about how he's done it and what he does and what the secret is to all of his success. If you've listened to him very long, you've heard him always come back to and refer to the process. He says, we have a process and we emphasize the process. He encourages his players in this process not to think about national championships, not even to have goals to win games. Not even to look at the scoreboard or consider the scoreboard during the game, but rather to commit themselves to the process. And that process involves everything that is done day in and day out with classes and times of instruction, practices, drills, playbooks, individual moments in a game, individual plays. And he says, if you will commit yourself to the process, then this will lead to success. And as Nick Saban's record testifies, he knows what he's talking about. He knows how to get the desired ends by following prescribed means. And year after year, class after class, with all the athletes to go to the University of Alabama to play football for him, he teaches them to buy into the process in pursuit of final victory. Well, in a far more profound way than could ever be true of college athletics, God has implemented processes into the world that he has created to bring about his plan of salvation for the world. He has a process, and he's working that process. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul explains what that process entails with respect specifically to Jewish people. In particular, he addresses this question. What about the Jews? What role do the Jews have to play in God's unfolding purposes of the salvation of the world? Do they have a role? Well, the simple answer to that question is yes, indeed, they do have a role. God intends to save Jewish people, and he intends to do it in the same way that he saves Gentile people. In the first 24 verses of Romans chapter 11, Paul explains that God has not totally nor finally rejected the Jews. They were, after all, his old covenant people. But rather, he has incorporated them into his process of bringing salvation to the whole world. Now, throughout the Old Testament era, God blessed the Jews with giving them his law. He sent to them his prophets. He established with them his covenants. He prepared them as a people 
to be the ones through whom his son, the Lord Jesus, would come into the world to be the Savior. Jesus was born in a Jewish family. He was the long-promised Messiah that the prophets had foretold. Yet despite all of their blessings and all of their benefits, most of the Jews in Paul's day had rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. They failed to recognize that he was the Messiah that they longed for, that God promised, and that now God had sent. This hardening on the part of the Jews was not fatal. It wasn't total, and it wasn't final. Rather, Paul says, it was purposeful. It was a part of God's process that he designed for the world in order to cause the good news of salvation to spread throughout the world. We read this in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, when Paul puts the question this way. So I asked, did they, speaking of the Israelites, did they stumble in order that they might fall completely? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. See, Paul reveals the process that God has employed to spread the gospel of his saving grace in Jesus Christ throughout all the world. And the process goes like this. First, Christ comes from the Jews for the Jews. Then secondly, the Jews by and large reject Christ as their Savior. As a result, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, who by and large are receptive to the good news of salvation in Jesus. Now this much, this part of the process is self-evident in the first century. It's in, seen very clearly in the New Testament record of what happened. It's exemplified in Paul's own ministry. He was appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see this part of the process demonstrated by reading the book of Acts and watching what happens when Paul carries the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. When you begin reading in Acts 13 through the end of the book, you'll see that Paul's regular practice when he went to a new town was to go to the synagogue where the Jews were. And he would preach there. And typically what would happen is before too long, the Jews or many of them would get upset and they would either kick him out or he would leave the synagogue and he would go to the Gentiles. And he would begin preaching to the Gentiles who were not Jews. And there, by and large, he found a greater reception to the gospel message. But the fact that more Jews or more Gentiles than Jews were trusting Christ did not mean that the Jews had fallen permanently away from God. Again, as Paul puts it at the end of Romans 11, 11, God designed salvation to come to the Gentiles in part so that the Israel might be made jealous. In other words, he designed it so that as non-Jews became Christians, Jews, as old covenant people, would look at them and see the blessings of God in their lives, see the reconciliation they had with God, and want what they had. That means that you and I, most of us here are not Jews, that we are to so value Christ and live for Christ in a way that it becomes attractive to those who have some connection to old covenant history as being a part of the Jewish people. This cause causes the gospel to gain a foothold 
among Israelites. And that's the fourth step in this process of gospel advance that Paul spells out in Romans 11. It's that fourth step that I want us to focus on today as we come to the conclusion of Paul's explanation about the place of Israel in God's saving purpose. Our text is Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. We'll go down to verse 32. Romans 11, verses 25 through 32. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the chair in front of you, you'll find this on page 947. I encourage you to get a copy of the Scripture open in front of you so that you can just follow along as we work our way through these words that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Rome. So let me begin reading in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God will work his saving purposes for his chosen people. It's going to happen. He's guaranteed it. He's got a process at work in his world through history to bring it about. Now, Paul in this passage is specifically speaking to his Gentile Christian readers. This is something he's been doing since verse 13. When you look back there, you'll see he specifically addresses them, and he introduces this last section of his teaching on the place of Israel in God's saving purposes by reiterating a concern that he expressed to his Gentile brothers and sisters in verses 17 and 18. He doesn't want these Gentile Christians to be prideful. He wants them to avoid becoming wise in their own sight, as our text puts it. And for that reason, he informs them of what he calls in verse 25, a mystery. A mystery. Specifically, this mystery refers to God's saving purposes for Israel. Now, Paul signals the importance of what he's about to say in our text by the way that he introduces it. He says this, I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, uninformed. And whenever Paul uses that phrase, which he does repeatedly in different places in his letters, he always adds this little uh, admonition or this little appellation, brothers, brothers. He's underscoring the importance of what he's about to say to people that he has a relationship with by grace. Well, there are three points that Paul makes in our text showing how God will work all his saving purposes for all his chosen people. Let me give you to, give them to you, and then we're going to just work our way through them. The first is in verse 25. He says that Israel has been partially hardened. And then in verses 26 through 29, he says Israel will be saved. 
And then in verses 30, 31 and 32, he says Israel will be saved just like the Gentiles. So let's look at these three steps, these three lessons. Israel has been partially hardened for a while, verse 25 says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here it is, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this is a mystery. That's a word that's not used very often in the Gospels, but the Apostle Paul uses it over 20 times in his own writings. And by that word, he is not referring to a riddle or what we might think of today as something that is mysterious or unintelligible. Rather, he's referring to a truth that has been previously hidden that now has been made known and is being revealed openly. And in this context, the specific mystery he's referring to is God's saving activity toward Israel. Most Jews in Paul's day were hardened to the salvation that is in Christ. That reality that Paul addresses throughout chapters 9, 10, 11 stems from their hardness. He wants to make sure in this portion of his letter that everyone understands that God's promise to his old covenant people, the Jews, has not failed. That's why he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, it's not like the word of God has failed. It has not failed. Most of the Jews of Paul's day misunderstood God's word. And so those who are watching what was happening, more Gentiles become Christian than Jews, could well think, well, it looks like God hadn't kept his word. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not it at all. The Jews haven't understood God's word. And that's why he spends so much time in these three chapters using over two dozen Old Testament passages to underscore his point, to show them how they misunderstood their own scriptures. They didn't get it. God revealed it, but they didn't discern it. Now, Paul takes no pleasure in this. I mean, he is a Jew. He's grieved over what he sees in this ongoing hardness of his fellow Jews. He tells us this in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. He says, as he opens this section, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, you can just hear it. He's burdened for them. He wants them to know what he's come to know. He wants them to know Christ. And then at the opening of chapter 10, the same thing. Verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. But they're hardened. Now, this hardening of the Jews is not terminal. In verses 11 through 24 of this chapter, he's already demonstrated that it's not total, nor is it final. And here in our text, he succinctly reiterates these points. The hardening of the Jews is not total. He says it. It's partial. Partial. Not all Jews in Paul's day or since Paul's day, have been hardened against the gospel of Christ. I mean, Paul himself was a Jew, and he uses himself as an example that he believes in Christ. He receives the gospel. So it wasn't total, but neither is this hardening final. You see the little word 
until this partial hardening has come upon Israel until? In other words, it has an expiration date. There's an end date to the hardening, and it will be marked by the fullness of the Gentiles coming in until that event, until that season when Gentiles with fullness are coming into the kingdom of God. Now, that's an important phrase that he uses there. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The the verb there, has come in, to enter into, means to leave one space and go into another. And it is the verb that is normally used throughout the New Testament to speak of entering into the kingdom of God. Whenever you're born again, whenever you trust Christ, you're, you're transferred, you're translated from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ, from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. You enter into it. This is Paul's meaning here and what's happening or will happen in the future with Gentiles and what he calls the, the fullness of the Gentiles. And that's another important word. We've already seen the exact same word used in verse 12 in reference to Israel, the fullness of Israel. And now he refers to the fullness of Gentiles. In verse 12, our ESV translates the word, the full inclusion of the Jews. What Paul is saying is that most Jews will remain hardened against the gospel of Jesus until a considerable expansion of blessing is poured out on Gentiles resulting in greater numbers of the nations entering the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned, when we looked at verse 12, along with verse 15, I take what Paul is saying there to refer to a great revival, a great season, maybe many seasons, when large numbers of people will be converted to Christ. That's what I think he means by the fullness of the Israelites, the Jews. And it's what I think he means by the fullness of Gentiles here. That he is anticipating. He is signaling that there will be a time in history when large numbers will be brought into the kingdom of Christ from the nations, and that will be the turning point for this partial hardening of the Jews to be turned away. When that happens, the Jews as a people, in their hardness against God, will see that hardness broken. So the vision of this verse that sets before us goes like this. A future exists that will include a large number of Gentiles and Jews entering the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, stop and think what this means for us. The way this ought to orient our own thinking and living. We should expect people to believe the gospel and be saved. That's God's way of fulfilling his saving purpose for the world. Just as Jews were hardened initially to spread the gospel to the nations, so the fullness of the Gentiles will be saved in order to make the Jews jealous and to lead them to seek Christ as well. Among other things, what this means is that you and I should be zealous and hopeful in spreading the gospel to the people that are all around us. There's a fullness of the Gentiles that God has established that he intends for them all to enter into his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, in all the nations, God has a people that he intends to save. It's true in Indonesia. It's true in China. It's true in Papua New Guinea. It's true in those darkest spiritual places in the world. God intends for his gospel to go 
and people to hear and believe. Well, this should take us right back to the argument that he's already made in chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what this means is we should learn the gospel, know the gospel, share the gospel indiscriminately, promiscuously, because God has a people he's going to save. You and I don't know where those people are going to show up before they're converted. They may be living in your home. They may be there with you on the job site. They may be your neighbors next door down the street. They may be the stranger that you meet at the supermarket. But God has a people. He's chosen from all eternity that will be saved. And they could well, these people that we're around day in and day out, could well be part of the fullness that Paul here writes about that God intends to bring into his kingdom. So that's point one. Israel has been partially hardened for a while. But secondly, Israel will be saved through the fullness of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. Verses 26 through 29 teach us this. Look at verse 26. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What a phrase. There have been volumes written on that phrase. And lots of disagreement among careful thinkers, biblical scholars, and theologians about exactly what Paul means here in this phrase. What is the salvation that he's referring to? Well, I can find no reason to see this as anything other than what he's been writing about in this whole book. It's the salvation that entails being made right with God, being reconciled to our Creator through faith in Jesus Christ. It is this Salvation that includes justification of sinners before God. It is the salvation that Christ accomplished by his life of righteousness, his death atoning for sin on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. This is the salvation, the only salvation the world has that God has given in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, who who does all Israel refer to? Well, I am a great uh, appreciator of John Calvin in the 16th century, that wonderful French Protestant Reformation leader. And yet, I disagree with him completely on this take. Calvin suggests that what Paul means here is a reference to spiritual Israel. In other words, all of God's elect, based upon Romans 9, 6, that not all Israel are Israel, but only that remnant, only the elect within the nation. But I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that simply cannot be correct. Because Paul has, throughout this section, been contrasting Jew and Gentile. Verse 25 clearly refers to the nation Israel, to the corporate people Israel, in distinction from Gentiles. And he continues to distinguish them from Gentiles in verses 28, 29, and 30. So I don't think that we can say, no, this is spiritual Israel here. And what Paul is just simply saying is that all the elect will be saved. That's true. That's certainly true. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And I follow the thinking of several others that disagree with Calvin as well here. 
For example, John Murray, the late Westminster theologian, writes, It is exegetically impossible to give Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preacher of the 20th century, says that the only valid and consistent interpretation is the one that sees Paul referring to the bulk of the nation of the Jews. This means that the Israel of verse 26 is the same Israel as verse 29. It means, Lloyd-Jones says, the bulk of the Jews, the Jews as a whole. And the late R.C. Sproul agrees. He adds, the context indicates that Paul must be speaking of the Jewish people. He does not mean every Jew that ever lived, but the nation of Israel. And all Israel will be saved. In this way, in this way, verse 26 says. In other words, this is the game plan. This is the process by which large numbers of Jews will be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles coming into God's kingdom will result in all Israel being saved. Now, that does not mean each and every Jewish person who is alive or will be alive or who has lived. Just as God's rejection of Israel was not without exception, Paul was an exception, so his inclusion of Israel does not mean each and every Jew will be saved. Well, after making this assertion, as he typically does, Paul appeals to Scripture to prove his point. All of this will take place just as the Scripture indicates, he says. Do you see that in verse 26? As it is written, Paul's saying, you should have seen this, my fellow Jews. You should understand this. God told us this would happen. And then he quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, and alludes to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, when he puts it like this. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, these are references to the deliverance of the Jewish people after captivity. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes that to mean that there will be a fullness of Israel that will sweep many into the kingdom of God after their partial hardness is completed. He makes us to know here, about the large-scale spiritual restoration of Israel, saying it was anticipated, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Well, in verses 28 and 29, Paul summarizes the present relationship that corporate Israel has with God. He gives us the status of Israel before God. And notice that in verse 28, he's not talking about the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles, but rather the relationship between Jewish people and God. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Enemies of who? Enemies of God. They're God's enemies because of their rejection of the gospel. They reject the Son of God, and therefore God is opposed to them. But Paul quickly reminds the Gentiles that this rejection itself is part of God's process for your sake. Gentiles, they rejected the Son of God in God's process that was included so that the gospel might run 
among the nations. He has said this previously in verses 11 through 24. It's through the trespass of Israel that salvation and riches have come to the Gentiles. Verses 11 and 12. It's by the branch of Israel being cut off from the tree of God's people that the Gentile branch was grafted in so that they might become God's people. This is an important point that we must not overlook or assume. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are all enemies of God. This is true even for His chosen people under the Old Covenant. It is true for His chosen people before they become converted in the New Covenant. Though God chose Israel to be His people, their rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah meant that they were God's enemies. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I who are trusting Jesus, we are God's chosen people today. And we trust Jesus because God loved us. He chose us. He redeemed us. He called us. He's granted us new life in Christ. You remember what Paul says to people like us, though, in Christ, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He's writing to new covenant believers, people who were already born again. And he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You just you were like them. You came into the world opposed to God, and you had to be rescued out of that. You were his enemy. In verse 3 of Ephesians 2, he says, Among whom these sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before God saved us, we were children of wrath. We were at enmity with Him. Without trusting Jesus Christ, that is true of everyone. It's true of you. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted Jesus Christ, hear what the Word of God says about your situation. You are a child of wrath. You're an enemy of God. You're not on good terms with your Creator. And you might think to yourself, well, I haven't really done that much. Bad, you know, and I'm in church. But the Word of God says no. When it comes to the Gospel, your refusal to take Christ as Lord makes you God's enemy. If you're not trusting the Lord Jesus, you must understand this. You're not on good terms with God. He opposes you. You oppose Him. Your only hope is for peace to be restored between you and your Creator. And the good news is God has established such peace and He's done it through the life and death and resurrection of His Son. And He calls you to be reconciled to Him. He calls you to have peace with Him by turning from your sin and trusting what He's done in Christ. You trust Christ, you'll be reconciled to God you'll be at peace. You'll be removed from enmity. Do you want to be at peace with God? You can be in Christ. Where you are, as you are, call out to God right now from your heart, oh God, save me for Christ's sake.
I trust Jesus Christ as Lord. As regards the gospel, the Jews are God's enemies. Verse 28 goes on to say, as regards election, beloved, beloved, beloved by whom? By God. They were loved for the sake of their forefathers. What does that mean? For the sake of their forefathers. What Paul is talking about here when he mentions election is not personal election of individuals to be saved, but the election of Israel as a nation to fulfill his old covenant purposes to bring about salvation. Through Israel, God's chosen nation of the Old Testament, though they rejected God's salvation by rejecting Christ, God still loves them and has a purpose for them. He loves his enemies. This does not mean that every Jew is going to be saved. And it certainly does not mean that every Jew or any Jew is going to be saved or made right with God apart from Jesus. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that God intends to show mercy on many Israelites because of the special relationship they established with their forefathers under the Old Covenant. Paul summarizes this in his explanatory statement in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Israel is beloved because God does not change. Though with the ending of the Old Covenant, Jewish people no longer have any covenantal claims upon God, they do have a place in the outworking of his saving purposes because his gifts his provisions, his privileges that he gave to them and his prophets, his laws, covenants, his calling, his obligating them to turn from sin and trust the provision of salvation in Christ. All of these are irrevocable, Paul says. They stand, they remain. The provision remains, the responsibility on them remains. So Israel's been partially hardened for a while. But Israel Israel will be saved through the fullness of the Gentiles. Finally, in verses 30 through 32, Israel will be saved, but they'll be saved just like the Gentiles are saved, in the same way. Look at these verses again. Verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so now they too, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Isn't that interesting? Mercy, three times. It's like he wants us to get this point. It's mercy. It's mercy. Then verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is so important. People miss this regularly. There's no special provision made for Jewish people to somehow get right with God outside of God's sovereign mercy in Jesus Christ. When Jews are saved, they will be saved in the same way that Gentiles are. It'll be by turning from sin, trusting the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and being reconciled to God through faith in Him. Gentiles are saved from disobedience. How? By mercy. Salvation comes to the nations by grace alone. And again, He mentions that in terms of the process God is using, the message got to the Gentiles because of the Jews' disobedience. That's the method. But Jews who are going to be saved will also be saved from disobedience by that same mercy, verse 31. 
You see what he says in verses 30 and 31. Just as. Same way that he did it with the Gentiles. Verse 31. So they too, along with you, in the same way that you have been saved. Just as Gentiles are saved by sovereign mercy, so will Jews be saved by sovereign mercy. Because just as Gentiles by nature are disobedient, so Jews by nature are disobedient. Just as Gentiles need grace, so do Jews need grace. Just as God gives grace to Gentiles in Christ, so he gives grace to Jews in Christ to be saved. The only way God saves anybody is by mercy, grace. In Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 32. Paul wants to make sure we don't miss this. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The only people God saves are those who are lost. The only people God shows mercy to are those who are disobedient. That's why he consigned all to disobedience. In other words, he made no plan B. There's no backup plan. God has one way of salvation. He's always only had one way of salvation, one provision. This provision will save Jew and Gentile. The only way anyone can be saved is by the provisions that God makes in Jesus Christ out of sheer mercy. Now, this is great news for disobedient people. If you know that you have disobeyed God, if you know by nature you're sinful before God, this is great news. God sent Christ for people like you. God has mercy for people like you. In fact, it's the only kind of people that he saves. Do you know yourself to be disobedient? Some of you do. Some of you have been living with that sense for a long time and it's weighed you down. And you, you, you feel like maybe you're not qualified to believe that God would love you and God would accept you. Listen, look at this text again. The only people God has mercy on are disobedient people. So you feel guilty for your sin? Praise God. You're right to feel guilty for your sin. You're guilty. The good news is God sent his son into the world to save guilty people. He came for sinners. If you know yourself to be a sinner, friend, look to Christ right now and be saved. Accept this mercy that God has for anyone and everyone who has disobeyed him, lived rebelliously against him, who by nature is his enemy, but who is willing to turn from sin and entrust themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord. He has Mercy for disobedient people. If you think you're not disobedient, you think that this really couldn't apply to you in this way, now I got bad news for you. If you think that you're okay on your own, Well, there's no mercy for you. You don't think you need mercy. The only people who need mercy are people who are guilty. If you know yourself to be guilty, quit trying to do something about it and trust God's provision in Christ. But if you think that you're not guilty, 
Oh, my prayer for you is that God will open your eyes and show you the truth. That he'll set a mirror in front of you and you'll begin to examine your life not by what other people are and do, but you'll begin to examine your life by what God calls you as his image bearer to be and do. And that you'll come to see that just like the people Paul's writing about, just like the people all in this room, you're guilty. But don't stop there. Don't let that condemn you. Go to God who consigns everyone to disobedience so that he might show mercy. And look to him for mercy. Isn't this a wonderful thing God's done? We need mercy. God delights to give mercy. So God can delight himself in giving us what we need. And you honor God whenever you confess your need for mercy and you look for his provisions of mercy in Christ. Well, God will work all his saving purposes for all his chosen people. He has a plan to make it happen. And he's about the business of working that process in the world throughout history to bring it about. And brothers and sisters, we can be sure, we can be sure God will save all his chosen people from among Jews, from among Gentiles. He will sovereignly act to pour out his grace and mercy on people who have disobeyed him. So be zealous, be encouraged as you fulfill your calling. God is at work. He will fulfill all his holy will and he will use me and you to do it. And we should be full of hope and encouragement. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful truth that you are working in your world to bring about your saving purposes for your people. We thank you for the way you use the old covenant people of Israel to bring about the Savior. And we thank you that there's hope even for them today as they have been partially hardened against you, that there's hope for them in Christ. And this hope is for all who are disobedient. Please help us, help us to know and believe this wonderful truth of your mercy and grace in Christ and to, to be faithful in declaring it to others. Use us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.